0: Hello everyone and welcome to The Bigger Picture. In this episode I have a conversation with Joshua Shry, who is the host of The Emerald podcast. If you haven't heard about The Emerald I'd highly recommend checking it out. It's gained a dedicated following over the last couple of years and if you're interested in a lot of the ideas I explore, the metacrisis, the meaning crisis, return of the sacred you will almost certainly enjoy it. So I will quote from the description page of the podcast because it does a good job of explaining it. The Emerald, quote, explores the human experience through a vibrant lens of myth, story, and imagination, drawing from a deep well of poetry, lore, and mythos to challenge conventional narratives on politics and public discourse, meditation and mindfulness, art, science, literature, and more. And the and more is quite important there. Josh really does cover a lot of ground. Each episode is about an hour and a half long, really nicely produced, lots of music, and told as almost a, a living story. In a sense, it's as much how it's delivered as what's being delivered. But what's being delivered is really, really interesting. And in this conversation, Josh and I covered AI, the meaning crisis, the return of ritual, and why a return to an animate worldview might be an essential part of making it through the metacrisis. So without any further ado, here is Joshua Schreie. So yeah, Josh Shry, welcome. Thanks for being here. I've been looking forward to this
1: for, for some weeks. Mm, thanks for having me. It's good to be here.
0: So I thought it would be interesting to, to first off just get a bit of a sense. I mean, I've been listening to the Emerald, your your podcast for um some months. I would say devouring, perhaps. I've been really enjoying <laughs> it. And um, may, what would be really interesting to hear because it's, it's very unique and it feels it feels more so than just perhaps someone going okay, I'm going to start a podcast. It feels as a listener like an artistic expression as much as a kind mm. of uh, you know a, a very a podcast also full of very interesting information. So how did it all come about? Like where where did it where was it birthed from?
1: Yeah, well, I'd say that the podcast is a reflection of the exact change that I'd like to see in modern discourse. So the podcast, in other words, is like you're saying, an artistic expression that combines music and storytelling and narrative may be presented in ways that people aren't used to. So I'll be going along and giving, you know, scholarly quotes, and then all of a sudden there'll be like some music building and it'll take people on kind of a journey and the purpose of that is really to tap into the ancient well of storytelling and the power of the storyteller and traditionally stories weren't dry things that lived only like on the pages of books stories were alive and there was a breath of life that permeated the story and the story was meant to take people on a journey and bring people into a state of being. And so the podcast really arose in response to discourse that I saw as increasingly compartmentalized, removed, uh, dry analysis of myth, for example, as opposed to connecting to the living heart, heart of myth. And so I really wanted to try to bring something that reawakens that spark that you know, lives within each of us because all of our ancestors were storytellers. We come from a lineage of hundreds of thousands of years of oral tradition, right? It's only gotten literary in the past uh, (laughs) handful of generations. So in an age when I think people are feeling distanced, isolated, distanced from what you could call kind of the, the heart of the living world, I I felt it necessary to try to tell stories um, in an ancient way or in a new way, you could say, in a new way and an ancient way, to kind of reawaken that closeness, the closeness of story. So, you know, my background, I've been a spiritual practitioner for most of my life. I've Learned a few things about music production along the way. I've been really into music my entire life as as well. And I've always had a deep love of myth and story. And when I first launched the podcast, you know, I had a slight vision of what it could be, but it's also really evolved as the years have gone by. And I've found like, hey, a podcast is actually a blank canvas you can put out Anything into the audio world, it doesn't have to be just uh, interviews or just like red words off a page, it can combine and weave. And as it weaves, it provides more of an opportunity for people to slip into that space of story that I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Uh, there's something a phrase you just used there of the, the closeness of story, which mm-hmm. um, I really like because there is something, you know, I'm an avid TV show, video game, any screen-based storytelling, you know, and podcasts, Mm. you know. So, but there is this sense of um, distance, of course. I mean, there's the physical distance between me and the person who's, you know, telling the story in a film, for example, there's a time distance. But then I think what, there's something around, you know, the word immersion is kind of overused, but there's something I think in the Emerald that, I think closeness captures it quite well because there's a re yeah there's a reconnection to something living in the art in the in the in the telling of the story which I think probably touches on maybe one of the biggest themes that I I think certainly I've seen in your work it's definitely a theme in in my work as well which is moving from seeing the world as a dead machine and ourselves as dead machines within a dead mm-hmm. machine to seeing the world as a place that's alive If you had to boil it down, would that be a somewhat useful summary of of one of the core sort of themes?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything in the modern world has become compartmentalized. So when you're talking about that distance, you know, the distance isn't just because of the screen. Like the distance that we feel with storytelling these days isn't just because of the screen. It's because of the role that we've assigned story. We've assigned story this role of basically entertainment and Yes, it uplifts us and makes us feel certain things, but ultimately it's categorized as as what you could call entertainment, right? And that's not traditionally the role that story played. Story traditionally is sacred. It's sacred. The origins of theater, the origins of the entire, you know, you could say heart birthing in Western culture, at least of, you know, cinema and video games and anything with a narrative like this, it it all comes from sacred theater. And theater was not something that was just designed for like, you know, the ancient Greeks to be sitting there eating popcorn and going, ah, that's interesting. It was meant to take people into deep places of catharsis, to take people into deep emotional states, to launch people into trance states, to bring them along this journey, and I don't know if you've listened to the episode that I did called The Shape of Stories, but it goes into this in, in a lot of detail. I think you might like that as a yeah. as a narrative storyteller. You know, they've done studies that show that when a person tells another person a story, their their, you know, brain patterns start to synchronize. And literally the person is taken for the emotional ride that the storyteller is on and there's a type of actual somatic entrainment that happens. And this is a huge part of how people learn, how people experience knowing and not knowing in the intellectual sense, but knowing in the original sense of the word, you know, nana, heart knowing as it is in Sanskrit, right? This like knowing in a a somatic way. And that process of theatrically enacting and taking people on a journey that I feel is essential for human experience. It's an essential way through which we make sense of the world, through which we learn about the world, through which we learn about culture, through which we reinforce our understanding of community and of ourselves and of nature. Right? We don't enact the change that we see, want to see, by just telling people a set of abstract points and then saying, okay, I hope you, I hope you get these points, you know? And by the way, if you don't get these points, I'm going to think less of you or cancel you. (laughs) That's a whole (laughs) other, you know, that's a whole other thing right now. Uh, right. The, the actual transformation of individual beings of bodies happens within a framework of enacted felt experience. And this has been essential for human beings forever. And so, yeah, the podcast, um, you know, I mean, really, it's an opportunity for me to explore myths that I like and explore cool topics and put some cool music underneath it. (laughs) So I'm not I'm not going to state these grandiose aims, like it's meant to uplift people, you know, (laughs) it's like, it's simple. And yet in that simplicity, it's meant to tap into what you could call like the deep power of storytelling to transport and enact and take people along a transformative ride. Yes.
0: Yeah, I want to look at enactment a little bit because you know as mm-hmm. you as you were describing that i was thinking about the the ways in which we used to enact the myths of our culture like in Eleusis for example you know people might be familiar with the eleusinian mysteries there's a lot of talk in in the world of psychedelia sort of my world of uh you know was was there a psychedelic um, compound involved in it and i think you know that's a very interesting question but i think more interesting than that which often gets overlooked in those conversations is that people were enacting the myth of persephone and demeter and they were they were going through some kind of long ritual process where they were living the myth and then dying and being reborn through that and that that i think is even more important you know because we you know we know now from from psychedelic research that Getting a bunch of Greeks, ancient Greeks, together into a place and get, giving giving them all acid is not guaranteed to be the most profound experience you've ever had in your life, and you must never speak of it again on pain of death because it comes from the chaos. It's that ritual container, and it kind of, it kind of strikes me that like we do have enacted rituals in a lot of Western cultures. It's just that they're sort of hollow now because they don't really point to anything meaningful. Like where I live in, in the UK, they're pretty good at big old spectacle and like let's have a horse and carriage and you know when the queen died there's this kind of deep in- enactment or when princess diana died it was like a different kind of hysterical eruption from the unconscious you know would mm. love to hear your thoughts on that like about what we what we actually enact compared to what we used to enact in the past
1: mm. yeah well because of the division between sacredness and spectacle because of the division between you know uh, I did an episode I don't know if you listened to it called festivals um uh it's about it's about this exact topic and i th- I think you'd resonate with yeah. that um yeah first of all so the the thread of elusis you know i i I agree with what you're saying I don't think it ultimately matters um you know whether or not there was an entheogen at the heart of it. I tend to think that there probably was yeah. um but human beings have discovered technologies of consciousness alteration for years and years and years that the the plant substance is, um, you could say, just the final layer on top, mm-hmm. you know, hours and hours of uh, days and days of fasting, the procession to Eleusis, which was massive, you know, they said thousands of people masks and offering platters and people singing in meter the stories of the gods. And, you know, you've been looking forward to, if you were an initiate, you'd been looking forward to hearing that story. your, you know, most of your life, you hear whispered in your ear that there's a story and there's a story of a being who lives like right at the heart of the turning of the seasons and right at the heart of the cosmos and right at the heart of your lives. And, and you're going to hear her story one day. Right. And that plants something in you, and then the the songs leading up to that fateful day and the fasting leading up to that fateful day and the procession up to the mountain and then the journey that you're taken on once there and the group bonding and the dancing and all of this takes a person towards an experience and that experience you know you can call it like telos like the ancient greeks called it which was a type of Death, ecstasy, opening, shattering, um, infusing of the individual somatic structure with the communal structure and the larger ecological structure. This is the power of story, this is the power of enactment, this is the power of ritual to actually shape and change things and for things to be, you know, felt within communities as a whole and felt within within individual bodies.
0: And then today, yeah. we have... I mean, there's a couple ways. There's a spectacle side of it, which might right. be like, you know, the nation state doing the kind of, hey, let's all collectively enact that, which I think is, you know, over time become more and more stale because we don't believe in that story so much. But also, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about you know the way a lot of us uh, are trying to reclaim some sense of ritual connection enactment like going to retreats you know I used to run um, men's retreats and and ritual was was quite a big part of it and as beautiful as it was I did have the sense of like man we're making up a lot of you know we're just trying to make it up as we go along you know and we don't quite Mm. know we don't even know you know in this part of the world what what the druids really were doing you know what their practices were we just have this kind of yearning to get back to something so yeah, i'd love to hear your, your thoughts on all on that
1: there was a schism and i talk about this in the festivals episode there was a schism like if you look at the history of catholic europe for example there were festivals and feasts for the saints there were i mean in in france they said that you know they still joke about france right and say like every other day is a, a national holiday right but i mean this was True for all throughout the Middle Ages, like there were festivals upon festivals upon festivals, and then the church got really uncomfortable with these festivals because basically it you know um challenged church authority and suggested that people have access to the divine themselves and they don't need the church's intermediaries and so there was a schism that was basically created by the church between what is you know sacred ritual act and what is debauchery on the other side, right? And because of that schism, I feel people are longing for the sacred, but we have a lot of very justified misgivings about religion. Um, So we find a lot of that ritual intensity that's aimed to get us towards the sacred. We find it through what you could call like debauchery, basically, Mm -hmm. you know? So like um, a football match is like... a perfect example, which, you know, people, people say on the one side, you get these kind of like, you know, intellectual critics who are no fun at all, who basically say, say, like, this serves no purpose, and it's all distraction and all this kind of stuff. Well, it's not all distraction. It actually, I mean, it serves a very core human purpose. And people need those types of expressions of group catharsis, and the songs and the stomping of the feet, you know, it's, it's group ritual intensity, right? It's just been divorced from the sacredness that used to live at the center. And it becomes its own religion, like here in the United States, right? American football, there are people who get buried in caskets with their like team's logo on them and stuff like this. You know, this is an indication like people are always looking for a substitute for that Holy experience that sacred experience right always looking for that ritual intensity to take us there and we find it in all kinds of different ways we even find it through war through killing each other because it's fundamentally a human need like humans need that type of catharsis they need that type of ritualized intensity and so i think like you're saying there's an effort now and this is kind of you know the podcast, I think, is within this overall kind of yearning and effort to reclaim that type of ritual intensity. I think there there's a, an effort now for people to reclaim it. I think people have realized um, that the, you know, I know you're familiar with this line of discourse, like people have realized that what was supposed to give us meaning, no longer gives us meaning, and that okay, the promise of the large religious institutions failed, but then the promise of humanism has largely largely failed too. The promise of like, you know, a human centric world that in which all can be made better through the movement of capital and this type of thing that has not done so well, and people are more miserable and isolated and alone that they've ever than they've ever been. Yeah. And so there's an effort to reclaim to find our way back to ritual. And then you have combined within this a real, like I said, reluctance and misgiving around religion. So a lot of times, rather than explore the deep wells that do exist within religious traditions, people are like trying to tap into something different and end up making a lot of stuff up. And there's going to be, I would say, a lot of happy accidents happening where people, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. stumble upon really interesting and Uh, powerful ways of working with one another. And I think there's also going to be a lot of like unnecessary reinventing of the wheel. Like, I think there's a lot out there already that if people maybe could get over a little bit of their misgiving around tradition, could find it within certain traditions. And all of this is kind of part of the, you know, spiritual smorgasbord that's going on right now. And it's also combined with a whole wave of, you know, capitalist Instagram monetization where it's like, uh, oh, we've found something sacred quick. (laughs) We got to turn it into a lifestyle. We've got to turn it into something marketable. We've got to where the real heart of tradition isn't that it isn't marketable. It's something that has to be found over years and years and years. And it's found through, you know, sometimes through boring and mind numbing repetition to get to certain breakthroughs and it's found through all the things, like it's found through selfless giving um, that's that's not posted about, right? Yeah, <laughs> It's found through all the things that run contrary to that modern culture of immediate gratification and capitalization. So I think that, you know, I think it's good, quote unquote, that there is a want for the return to the sacred. And I think within that, we have to ask ourselves, like, what, what is the heart of what is the heart of the sacred, you know, and how, how long does it take to get there? And what are like simple ways that I can start to adjust my life to maybe access it more deeply? What are simple ways I can connect to community around this? Um, you know, because of our relationship with spectacle, everything always, you know, gets turned into a big show in our culture, too. And that's like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff these days passing as sacred ritual. Then a lot of it is show, you know, a lot of it is like, I'm going to assume the role of the feathered shaman and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. take you on this journey. And the heart of ritual is close again and humble. And, mm-hmm. uh, and that, that's where I think we need to turn more of our attention. And that's easy to miss. It's easy to miss when we encounter it. It's like, oh, really? You're telling me that the answer is just like show up and do the same thing over again and try to treat my neighbor well and, uh, right? Can't the answer be a lot more flashy than that? Can it come with a lot of accompanying bells and whistles? Well, it doesn't always. In that simplicity, there are great treasures that await, right? We just have to have the patience through which to get there.
0: Yeah, beautifully said. This is something I think about a lot. I always like to try and go to the origins of something, as I think m- many of us do. I mean, it's just a type of a certain type of thing. I'm like, okay, well, what's the what's the underlying cause of of these the meaning crisis, for example? Um, mm. And I think the the place I've gotten to so far is probably a very similar place that you're talking about, which is that i mean i have this idea about called reality eats culture for breakfast um and it comes from the Great. the phrase culture eats strategy for breakfast from the business mm. world and that that idea of obviously yeah the culture of a company will 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 subsume and, and be the, the the more dominant force than any particular strategy and for a long time i was like okay well how do we change culture then and then as i delved into it more part, partly through the process of writing my book and, and partly through some very powerful DMT experiences um <laughs> i thought okay actually the underlying metaphysical substrate is what needs to change, which I think other people have probably pointed to as well. That's a naughty problem as well. That's a difficult task. But the, um, you know, I think the the underlying assumption right now, you know, I, I like to describe it through the difference of quantity and quality. So we have a quantitative model of reality that comes out of the Enlightenment and that is effectively the scientific worldview, which has been so so successful in some ways that, you know, mm. obviously people are like, yeah, quantifying. You know, we don't talk about GDP in qualitative terms. It's like, what's the quantity? <laughs> what's the GDP quantity? No, um, we don't. So you know, we yeah, do um, and then as I as I started going down that track, I was like, oh wait a minute, i I know this. This is like Zen in the art of motorcycle maintenance. You know, Peersig kind of, you know, really looked at this and I think he was absolutely onto something. But it, it strikes me that I have more sympathy for a return to traditional religion often than the um, the sort of corporate capture of the sacred, which is something because because being you know in the psychedelic field was something I was still am, but have a little bit less, but was deeply concerned about, especially a few years ago during the boom. Actually, somebody I forgot who said the Lululemification of psychedelics, right? Which I thought was a great a great word. <laughs> but so so there's this sense that when you look at, like, the Instagram New Age commoditized, uh, you know, that whole scene of spirituality, which is by no means everywhere. There's plenty of people who are doing deep, you know, going to the passion and not talking about it. But I think that something you said is very important, which is, like, that more centered, connected, quiet. Like, John O'Donohue often talks about, like, silence being, like, the soul being basically a place of silence and that actually revealing the soul is not really what the soul's is about. You, know, you talk as this lovely image of like candlelight is the best thing for the soul because there's pockets mm. of darkness that I can kind of hide in. And mm. I really connect to that a lot and that kind of Celtic view. And it could not be more different from the social media reality <laughs> of how so much modern spirituality expresses itself. So I'm curious, you know, where you've seen those pockets of humble connected sacredness, you know, the communities you've encountered or their particular places. But I'm also very interested in like, where do we go from here, you know, and how those, how those can potentially build.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they're everywhere if you know what to look for. Mm. And and this is part of the, the issue is that, you know, I think people don't really know what to look for. And because we don't know what to look for, we look for the show. Um, because we're used to looking for the show. We're used to a vision of, Everything has to be performative, and everything has to be catered to what I want as an individual, and what's going to reaffirm my sense of, you know, my special place within the universe, and this type of thing, mm-hmm. because that's a product of modern Western individualism. The guys on Weird Studies, you know that podcast, Weird Studies.
0: Is it like um, the weird, like the Joseph Henrik kind of weird, or
1: no, like, JF no Martell? Okay. Um, yeah, I think yeah. you dig it. Actually, it's yeah, yeah. it's a really it's fascinating conversations, yeah. but they had a they had kind of a they had a big conversation about kind of the spiritual but not religious versus religious. And you know, again, I I one hundred percent understand people's deep misgivings about anything that they see to be religious. But they they asked an interesting question on this podcast, like you know, what are what are the stakes if you're just like free form spiritual? Like what what really what do you have to give? What What is being required of you? Like, what's the, what are the, where, like, I would put it in terms of like, where does the friction come from? And it, And if the practice is simply like, you know, I'm practicing in a tradition that tells me that I'm going to get everything I want if I ask the universe for it, or, or really that I can show up, oh, I'm not feeling like doing this today, so I'm just not going to do it, or I'm not feeling like doing that today, so I'm not going to do it. You know, there's a there's a friction that's necessary for alchemy. Alchemy, you know, alchemy, which is material alchemy and historically and inner alchemy, spiritual alchemy, it requires a fire and it requires a crucible, a cauldron in which things can boil and churn. And that, friction often comes from like oh i'm i'm in community and i don't agree with everybody <laughs> and there's a really annoying person over there and i can't just like you know turn the other way and say like oh i don't have to deal with that person you know oh this this community today is really like tripping me out so i'm just going to go do my own thing over here Maybe I'm gonna jump from this community to that community and everything or or not even get involved in community at all because like community's icky, and I don't know. I tried community for a while, but people kept out kept like pointing out things that I actually need to work on and uh, <laughs> and that's like deeply uncomfortable, right? It's like the you think of there's a lot of valorization, there's a lot of idealization uh, and and I'm part of this too, of you know, Paleolithic ritual, traditional ritual, our ancestral, you know, legacy of ritual and this type of thing. But like small scale cultures, you have to realize that people were in relation with people they didn't agree with all the time. People were in relation in a cauldron that they didn't have the option of leaving. Right. And within that, it's like you got to like, okay, you know, think of my friend, Rose from Santa Clara Pueblo, uh, Native American tradition. It's like uh, the ritual is done this way and this way and this way. And, and if you don't like how the ritual is done, like you don't, (laughs) you don't (laughs) like, yeah, maybe 40, 50 years down the line, you could raise some things about, Hey, like, what if we tried it this way? And that doesn't mean there's never innovation in ritual, but it means like oftentimes in practice tradition, you have to spend a whole lot of time with things that make you uncomfortable. You have to spend a whole lot of time in like actual alchemy with others. I feel that if a person really wants to do the necessary inner alchemy, that we have to be a little bit more willing to enter into those practice cauldrons that are going to rub up against us and bristle, you know, ruffle our feathers and make us bristle and and this type of thing, because that's that's how things grow it's how things actually evolve and then i think the other obstacle that we face is that and i talked about this a lot on the psychologization episode it's like everything we take to be about us everything you know we take to be you know some type of way to make it all about an internal psychological experience that is ultimately all about things that live in our head. And this kind of gets, I think, to the core of what you're talking about. And I see like the the heart of the meaning-making crisis, you know, to, to use an Occam's razor approach to it. The heart of the meaning-making crisis is that we live in an animate world and that animate forces are real. And that there is a sacred heart to creation. And if we don't have connection to that, of course, we're going to have a meaning making crisis. Yeah. I mean, you know, you look at the fundamentals of how indigenous cultures have understood like the 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 laws of creation and the laws of nature forever. It's like, there's there's a sacred, holy, conscious heart to this universe. And, you know, and I know this is not a, feeling that everybody has. I know that it's not, you know, but the heart of the meaning making crisis is that we've distanced ourselves from the heartbeat of mother earth. We've distanced ourselves from the heartbeat of the cosmos. Right. And we're trying to find it here. We're trying to find it here. We're trying to find it in humanistic paradigms and we're trying to find it. And ultimately, like what it takes for a human being to feel whole and complete is connection to that. Like ultimately it's connection to that, you know, and, you can, like, <laughs> freak out and say, oh, my God, he's talking about God and, like, this type of thing. And, yeah, I mean, it's good to provoke those. It's good to provoke those, like, inquiries. Uh, yeah. You know, this next episode I'm doing is on, like, all right, let's talk about it. Is there an inherent justice to the universe? Like, let's talk Like, all the things that people – don't want to get into because it would be really theistic of them to get into it like those questions actually happen to be incredibly important which is why human beings have self-organized around those questions for years and years and years and years right
0: yeah so many threads to pick up on there at least my own experience is tapping into the the living reality of of the cosmos or the the earth is also a sense of telos and direction and purpose that comes with that right there's a kind of there's a deep sense of meaning right that that comes with that you know it also taps into the idea that perhaps for the ancient greek and a lot of other people wouldn't be so alien but is 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 just totally antithetical to the western humanistic mind which is destiny or predestination or and free questions of free will sort of cosmic free will like it's those are dangerous questions i think for the western psyche because we have to <laughs> we have to absolutely be the ones doing everything otherwise the whole endeavor is just ridiculous and so that whole i well it's a huge philosophical topic and i don't want to misrepresent my ideas but the idea of some kind of level of predestination is is something i'm (laughs) pretty sympathetic to you know Mm. and i mean it more than just like everything is written in stone and there's only a single path but there is a sense of like clarity that comes with that you know i remember one time my um my brother was uh, his an ex girlfriend of his years ago uh, was Indian uh, British Indian and we were visiting her grandmother um, and my brother used to ride a uh, motorcycle and you know my mother was like super worried about him having an accident and her grandmother was like eh they're either gonna have an accident or not whatever like you just <laughs> ride the bike you know if you're gonna, if you're destined yeah. to have an accident you're gonna have an accident yeah. I remember thinking like huh it's kind of relaxing as a, as a stance. Um, but there's just there's just a thing I wanted to pick up on as well. It's very um, relaxing,
1: yeah. and that's actually really key. And yeah. we can talk about that a bit if you want. But
0: yeah, maybe maybe let, let, I'll, I've, I've circled the other thing I wanted to dive into. Let's talk about that a little bit while it's fresh.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I see happening right now is that yeah, we live in a world in which you're talking about like the everything has to be under the auspices of human control. Yeah. And that's like the the burden of humanism. Right. And now that we've done like, you know, unconscionable things to the environment, we're facing the consequences of of that human centric view. And now, of course, we are now the, the self-appointed human champions that are going to fix it all. <laughs> yeah. um, and we are the self-appointed human champions that are going to save the world, quote unquote. And this isn't to say that there aren't extremely vital things that need to be attended to. There are. And whenever I have this conversation, I say, I am in favor of political activism. I'm in favor of environmental activism. I'm in favor of all of these things. I think it's also important, like when you look at cultures traditionally that have a deep sense of the flow of nature and the balance of nature and the movement of nature, it's important to understand that there is a larger picture It's important to understand that there is a larger movement. And I see people right now with, you know, the horrors that are going on in Gaza and the environmental crises that we're facing and this kind of thing. I see people from a legacy of individualized, like the individualist West, who are really hurting and understandably hurting. And also taking a huge amount of the burden on their own shoulders, like in that kind of tried and true Puritan work ethic, individualist, humanist way. Like I'm the one who's got who's personally responsible for all this. And that, you know, from a perspective of like the larger movements of nature, that's just simply not the case. Like no one human being can shoulder that burden. And so like for me. While I I hurt for the world and I grieve for the world and I take action for the world, I also feel that there's a larger movement and that movement unfolds across billions of years. And that movement has seen multiple extinction events and that movement is vaster. It is the great mystery and I don't control it. I don't control that movement, you know. And it is relaxing, it is a relief, it is a balm for tortured souls, and you won't find examples of, you know, indigenous traditions, and I will say this, like, as far as I've studied universally, traditional cultures and indigenous traditions have a sense of the greater movement of the cosmos and the greater law of the cosmos and how it unfolds, you know, and that gives anchor and stability in times of crisis. And that anchor and stability, you know, rediscovering the animate is not just about tapping into these deep wells of grief. I mean, that's important, but it's also about tapping into the fact that there is a larger movement, you know, and that we don't determine that movement and things are going to play out kind of, you know, as they play out. And if you really like if you really examine nature. Right. If you really examine that, like all of this is the trajectory from the scientific perspective of the Big Bang. Like all of this is a trajectory and that trajectory is completely predictable on mathematical lines. Like if you if you really understand that, you un, you understand that this little thing that we call free will is very little. It's very little. I'm not going to get into a philosophical debate about whether it exists at all or anything like that, but it's very little, you know we're we're tiny specks in a vast ocean of time and there are trajectories and movements that are at play that are so much vaster than we even recognize and even like okay so the you know the big bang inflates and burns into these galaxies and uh, these galaxies form suns and those suns form planetary systems and this planetary system has water and that water is churning and the movement of the bodies around that planet of churning water um, churn into life forms and those life forms continue to be governed by these tidal movements and orbital movements and is there a thought that you've ever thought a feeling you've ever felt it wasn't part of some larger tidal movement at play within the cosmos, you know. And there's a new scientific book that just came out called Determined. I don't know if you've no, checked it out. No,
0: I haven't checked out. But
1: this no. is a scientist from the scientific perspective basically saying, yeah, I'm not so sure about this whole free will thing, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? And I actually want to reach out to him and see if he'll – Join for the podcast, because I think that would be an interesting discussion. But, yeah. you know, it's important to recognize um, that, you know, we have our little spheres of influence. And within this relative world, we should use those, the that influence, I think, in the most harmonious way that we can. Yeah. And also, you know, there is a much, 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 much larger movement at play. And if you ever want to dive deep into the myths that really go into this, the entire Mahabharata from India, the entire Mahabharata is this. It's about cause and effect and the attempts to find the right way to enact human justice, for example, within, you know, million year curses of the nature gods and like, uh, you know, this whole larger movement that ultimately determines everything and and we have our tiny little boats in this vast ocean saying i have free will and i'm in control of it all right yeah, yeah. Love that. so love that. starting to turn ourselves over to that larger flow a bit i think is necessary for the western mind and heart i think it's necessary yeah
0: absolutely and, and i think there's a particular kind of madness that develops when when we place and this is this is due partly to psychology as well, when we place an inordinate amount of burden on our internal locus of control, which has happened with climate as well. I mean, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, I know one of the the founders of Extinction Rebellion and I had a bunch of friends who were involved in that and I was sort of quite critical of it, but supportive, support, supportive, critical, <laughs> kind of sort of at the same time and kind of stuck between two worlds a lot of the impetus for that came from, I don't know if you've heard of Jem um, who's a, he's a kind of, a envir- I guess he was an environmentalist. He was basically on sabbatical and he wrote this sort of we're all doomed paper called Deep Adaptation, the idea being we just need to adapt to the fact that we're doomed. And it really struck a chord with middle-class British people, <laughs> especially. Mm. I mean, like, the, you know, the whole movement was sort of critiqued for being very middle-class. And I think there's something interesting in that as well because it is also the most sort of, There's a kind of neuroticism, but there's also a deep yearning for annihilation somewhere in it, right? It's just like we're already going to get to the – when do we get to be annihilated? And even though there's a grief in it, I would often pick up this sense of like, ooh, but at least it's a totalizing force. At least annihilation Mm -hmm. is completely inescapable and totalizing. And in a weird way, I think that there's a kind of urge for that can show up in some of these, these movements. Not to say everyone in that movement is going through that. And I think I can understand. There's a religious force that wants to come through. That will come through in in lots of different ways. In the sense of, you know, annihilation is kind of appealing because it's certain. At least it's certain, sure, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Like polytextured annihilation is a lot more likely and a lot less certain. And uh, you know, we live in the midst of that all the time. I mean, I had an interesting conversation with Van Jones the other day who you know, he was like, you know, communities of color have lived with the end of the world for a long time now, you know? And like, you know, we're like, we, the quote unquote Western world is finally realizing like, oh my God, there are consequences and things are going to happen and I'm not totally safe and things might fall apart at any minute. And now we're freaking out trying to find like what the, the way forward through that is. And like what you're saying, (laughs) it's also like it's a, I think it's important to look at how historic, like, in the Western world, like, you could something you could call, like, Puritan moroseness <laughs> or, like, narratives on, like, again, individual burden and Puritan work ethic and narratives on sin and redemption and narratives on, like, you know my bitter my bitter task is to be the one who shoulders the burdens for humanity so i am going to be in a constant state of grieving moroseness for the state of the that's a very puritan like i don't see many traditional cultures responding to the um you know the planetary situation that way i see it as a that particular flavor i see as a recapitulation of uh puritanism um playing itself out in bodies that have a historical legacy of Puritanism and have changed the lens so that it's on, you know, saving the planet rather than on, you know, finding God, but it's still imbued with the same energetics and basic principles. And I'm going to do a whole episode on this because I see, I see, I see Puritanism a lot alive and well in, um, you know, the, the, the modern progressive vision, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm a <laughs> yeah. progressive, uh, I'm funny. a progressive, but I see Puritanism in many, many ways, kind of finding a way to re, um, establish itself like over and over and over again. And I think that's something really worth looking at. Like what do alternatives actually mean, you know, yeah. and relationality is an alternative and within systems of relationality, you know, um, survival like if we're going to survive um you know people can't simply just be bogged down by the weight of individual burden and psychology all the time yeah and you look at culture after culture that has survived and no and one of the purpose that ritual serves yes there are rituals that go into the grief and this kind of thing but one of the purposes that ritual serves is communal uplift and joy and we're going to get through this anyway. And, you know, and, oh, I've got a, I've got a lot, a lot of shoulders to lean on. And I've got a lot of people who are right there with me. And if I find myself getting stuck in cycles, like I, the teachers that I've seen in certain traditions are just like, ah, here, come have some food, eat, let's laugh and tell some jokes together and, uh, and drive a little of that heaviness away. And that's important too, because I do see a like I said a particular flavor of burden and moroseness that I think is I don't think we're um, I don't think we're creating anything new or revolutionary by shouldering that burden or moroseness. I think we're recapitulating something that has existed for a long time yeah. that we're supposedly yeah. trying to get away from.
0: What's also impossible in those in those communities very often or seems impossible that a, a lot of witch hunts get you know basically start right and mm-hmm. they're because it's so psychologized you know often it'll be like okay we'll do a restorative justice process or we'll do this or we'll all talk about it and the issue is that people with dark triad personality traits are so good at capturing at getting into those communities and basically having an, an outsized influence so you see it with I've, I've seen that over and over it's like very narcissistic behavior or sociopathic behavior can really capture psychological Talk and therapy speak really, really well, mm-hmm. and because it's all in the mind, there's nowhere for it to go. But you know, as you were saying before, it kind of struck me like if there's a ritual that doesn't change, and it's like, hey, it's not about you. The ritual is going to be the process that we all agree is going to be, or this place, you know, you know, that we go to that's going to cleanse us, that's beyond us. Um, so you know, I, I do. I do hope that that starts to filter into those more progressive communities because, you know, I would also consider myself a progressive, but I think like many, it I, I would be, if someone asked me, hey, do you want to join this conscious community? I would be wary, <laughs> be very wary. <laughs> it's like, maybe, I don't know. Yeah.
1: yeah, and a lot of that has to do with like, it's not necessarily often a reflection of how communities have traditionally self-organized, which really has to do with relationality, um, as the center of it, as opposed to individuals as the center of it. And even when people are coming to community these days, they're coming with the understanding that this is a place in which my own individual being will be somehow lifted up or exalted or this kind of thing. And that's not ultimately relationality. That's, um, that's a process that lends itself to a whole lot of disagreement and infighting if it's not handled well. And part of this, you know, that I talk about a lot is that like, from a ritual perspective, anyway, I think, you know, people are reclaiming ritual now, and there's a lot of work to reclaim ritual. And I think it's good. And, and, you know, I'm, you know, obviously part of that movement in my own way. But I see that, like, ritual like i said in the psychologization episode it's like ritual has become conflated with a psychological individual psychological process and so often you'll get rituals now for example that people like gather in ritual circles and like one of the first things is like kind of everybody go around and talk about how they're feeling Mm -hmm. right and i just you know and i'm not saying this is bad it might serve a particular purpose but if i just compare it to traditional rituals from cultures around the world like That's, that's not how traditional ritual tends to work. (laughs) It's, it's not like a big sharing circle of individual psychological feelings. Um, it's about the animate force at the center. It's about the thing at the center. It's about us in relation to Persephone or us in relation to the solstice or us in relation to, um, you know, the God or goddess or spirit or being at the, at the center. And, the transformation that happens, happens without having to name it as an individual psychological process. Um, and there's an alchemy to that, that it's much more difficult to get to if it's all about the individuals involved. Right. And I think, you know, along with that, like if a community needs space for people to work stuff out in like a council or whatever, that's separate from the ritual work. The ritual work, like once you enter into that ritual space, the ritual work is to connect you to something larger than you, something eternal. Ideally, in the ritual space, you are completely blown out of any sense of individuality whatsoever. I mean, that (laughs) that, and and it's not about even when you come back, it's not about like, well, my experience and my takeaways and like, you know, it's about a collective movement and it's about. You know, if we're really talking about honoring the animate or honoring the forces of nature, it's about whether those forces were able to find expression within that ritual space. It's about whether they were fed, whether they were placated, whether they got the larger picture got brought back into balance through that ritual activity. It's not about like, did I go through some type of individual psychological catharsis in this ritual, right? and this isn't to say that psychology and the therapeutic process can't be important they can they're just different they serve a different purpose and i think keeping those things like keeping sacred ritual in which you know it's not an individual process and it's much more about the collective and relational and the and the being at the center is important it's important to keep that integrity because if you don't then a whole lot of interpersonal dynamics come in that could really sabotage the entire um heart purpose of of the ritual and then become just another way for us to reinforce our individualism yet again right
0: yeah yeah absolutely there's also this this sense of the um the pro- what well, something I'm very interested in I did a big piece about trauma um because of you know uh, the over The overreach of the term, and spoke to like you know lot, lots of trauma experts. Um, well, my wife is a psychologist who works in trauma as well, so i 'm kind of like very intrigued by the whole thing and you know the place I got to one of the places I got to is that with psychology playing the role of religion, trauma, th- there needs to be an answer to the problem of evil in theology. It's just like if if, if God is all benevolent and all knowing, why do bad things and evil things happen? It's like okay, you gotta. That's a that's a knotty problem you have to solve. So everyone's waiting for an answer, right? And so yeah. I think psychology's answer has become unconsciously. Uh, which is fitting for psychology, but it has become trauma. It's like bad things happen because of cycles of trauma. Not to say that that's not also true. I think that is also. I think that's a, it's fairly solid. It's just not true in every context. I think, but you know, so so there is this sense of if we're going round and round with our own personal stories, we are just going to get enmeshed. You know, I always feel this sense of heaviness and soupiness and enmeshedness with some of these uh, some of these worlds. Um, so. Yeah, I wanted to just in uh, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about ties in a little bit to our relationality as well, R- our relationship to the the new gods on the scene, to the AI, you know. And you've mm. you've got a brilliant AI episode, I think, which is which is um, gone far and wide. I, I I understand perhaps even into the the ears of uh, people working on AI, which is uh, refreshing to hear. But you know, our relationship with these yeah these these effectively these new oracles and sort of entities that are hitting the scene, how how might we move into right relationship with that kind of entity, given the Mm. position we find ourselves in?
1: You know, the process for human beings is what it always has been, which is that there are great powers at play in the world, and the question isn't whether we can unlock those great powers. We can. The question is whether we have individually and communally gone through a process that allows us to be able to hold them properly. Right. And so the idea in the Western world, like that an individual might have to go through a process before they're allowed to work with world altering technology, it's like butts up against the culture of individualism. But this is the entire purpose of the initiatory process in traditional cultures. Like you don't, you get kind of Smack down a bit when you're a young adolescent lad who wants like access to, uh, in the case of the Greek myth, like the son of Helios wanting access to his chariot. And um, you get told no, you get told like, no, you got to wait, you know, patient elders tell you, you have to wait and like i said in the episode there's not any voices in a culture that's hell bent on progress and uh you know next quarter's profits and the ai intelligence national security race and everything there's there's no voices that are just saying like this would be better if we really took some time with this this would be better if we if we really you know um learned how to to wait so you know great power, <laughs> I'm not going to quote Marvel, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but I'll say like, you know, great power requires a container that can hold it. And if not, it will unleash itself in all kinds of ways that require later balancing. And hopefully millions of people don't die in that balancing, right? Sure. So we have to look a lot more deeply at what it means to develop a container individually So it's not just this roving mind that's like, ooh, guess what? Like I can alter this and tinker with that and make this do this. And, you know, that's a mythic character and that character needs tempering, right? So there's stuff that needs to happen individually. There's stuff that needs to happen communally. And there's stuff that needs to happen culturally. And the real question I have is whether we're capable of learning those lessons or if we're just going to have to test the waters and see what happens and then end up getting burnt. I mean, we took some pretty serious action around nuclear proliferation when the the bomb was first invented, and I hope that humanity can put some containers around AI too. And then the other thing with that is just, you know, and and you can call me a Luddite if you want, but, um, you know, like exponential roving... (laughs) disembodied intelligence computational intelligence isn't the the like solution to humanity's problems yeah. <laughs> the hu- the solution to humanity's problems is like us saying like oh we need to prioritize caring for people and we need to prioritize you know envi long term environmental systems that work and we need to prioritize really going into the heart of issues in a community not just with Abstracted activist slogans saying, like, you have to conform to how I see the world. But, like, through deep systemic change, you know, we have to start approaching things from a place of compassion and embodied wisdom, right? And so, like, uh, an AI intelligence might spit out a list of, like, oh, yeah, here, it's simple. Here's all the ways that you're going to save, you know, the planet, quote unquote. It still takes conscious wise individuals to implement those so we might have all the intelligence in the world all the computational intelligence in the world but we still have to embody it it doesn't mean anything if we don't embody it and put it into practice and there are cultural traditions alive and well in the world today some of the ones you know that have been um wrongly labeled by overarching puritan culture as the most quote unquote primitive cultures there are cultural traditions alive in the world today that know how to survive for sixty five thousand years. They know yeah you know, they know how to they know how to do it right. The tools don't always look like external technological tools. There are internal technologies of focus, for example, like the focus that it takes to be a hunter in one of those Kalahari cultures. Those technologies of focus have gotten human beings along for a very, very, very long time. And we've lost our focus. We have mm-hmm. lost our focus. Mm-hmm. It, can anyone tell me what the long-term plan is? <laughs> like, yeah, okay. Like, you know. So you get – I mean people – like the leaders can put on their suits and ties and act like incredibly rational and act like this is – and nobody has a long-term plan, yeah. you know. And that's a sign of a culture that's lost its wisdom. There need to be deeper discussions going on about like, okay, what really is the long-term plan? When we get into a world of automation and everything, it's not going to matter whether people have a billion dollars or, you know, $100,000. You know, and we're caught in this race around what we think needs to happen because we're used to a particular system of profit generation and a certain economic model and everything like that. And that model is simply going to be irrelevant in the coming years. And we need to start planning for something that's relevant, takes us there over and over again in the word relevant, right? Mm-hmm. Re- like recycles and renews and replenishes over the long over the long haul. So yeah. those are some, some thoughts on that. Beautiful,
0: beautiful man. I would love to talk for the next several hours. There's so many threads I'd love to pick up on, but um, <laughs> it feels like a, it feels like a natural place to, to to end. But Josh Fry, thank you so much, man. This has been uh, uh, really nourishing and interesting.
1: Yeah, awesome discussion. Thanks for having me.